Good morning, Battleground. If you're here with us in attendance or if you're visiting with us online, we're glad to have you. Uh, I do want to start with a little bit of a preface. Last year at this time, right after Easter, uh, matter of fact, Stephen had asked me to preach a sermon uh, series. And um, he's asked me again today to give himself a break, which um, I'm glad for and honored to be here with you today. But I want to go ahead and, and, you know, let this be known to Stephen. Don't come up with any health scares this year, okay? So we, we, we don't want that to happen. Stay well, rest well, and uh, be back with us uh, next week, please. <laughs> so um, so if, if you don't mind uh, standing, we are going to uh, read. Uh, we're in First James still, uh, chapter 1, and we're going to read... Verses 2 and 4, and then I'm going to jump to 12 and 18, uh, through 18 today as the uh, primary text. So, um, just listen along with me. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, very, <clears throat> meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. On down the 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here today uh, in the midst of your church, uh, your people, God, who through centuries, Lord, that you have been working to bring about, God, your harvest and, and your people um, and bringing us to belief of you. And we are here today to celebrate that as we, as Micah stated uh, earlier, that points us to the cross and as last week we remember, uh, reminded of the resurrection, that everything that we believe hinges on those two things. So today, Lord, as we dig in, may that be the substance of our faith. May that be what we truly hold and believe to. Not something that we try to control. Not blaming you, God, for the circumstances in our life. But knowing, God, that you have put forth everything uh, for a good time in the sense of that you will provide out of it your good character and teach us something deeper about you. Lord, guide us as we go through your word this morning. May your spirit be with us and open our hearts. And may you just be with my words. Uh, we love you and we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Everyone may be seated. You know, since we've been away from James for a few weeks, I thought it would be good to kind of wrap back to it. I think it's been three weeks from today, the, the last time we've touched this text. And so uh, it's good to summarize some of the more important points that we've learned to this uh, leading up to today's passage. 
Um, so if you remember, we had established that James, given the time uh, period of the writing of this letter, was more than likely not James the disciple, but James the half-brother of Jesus. And he's writing, based on what we know of the earlier por- portions of the text, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion which I believe is speaking to those who are Jewish who have become believers. Others may disagree, and it's okay, because at the end of the day, James is writing to the church here. All of us included in that. So it's good to be reminded that that's who he's writing to, and he's writing pertaining to the trials of various kinds and the testing of their faith, if we go back to verse 2, as we've already read, that it had cost those believers much in their life to follow Jesus. And we had to draw upon that ourselves several weeks back when we reflected on this text. Is it costing us much to follow Jesus in our lives? James is writing to these believers here who it, it has cost much. You have to understand that to become a believer in that time as a Jew, you were giving up everything. You were giving up your family. You were giving up your profession. A lot of things were stripped away from you. Your reputation. The people who once knew you, they no longer acted as if they did. They persecuted you. So he's writing to that crowd in these circumstances. And these things are producing what we're going to delve a little bit deeper into. But verse 2 through 4 showed us today a sense of steadfastness or perseverance is what that word means. And we'll go into more detail about that here in a minute. But it also taught us, as we have learned, that we seek wisdom through God's Word to further understand and find comfort in those moments. And that's where they found their comfort, and that too is where we should find our comfort some 2,000 years later, is in the very Word of God and seeking wisdom in Him. So it is at this point that James returns to the topic of steadfastness today which we see derives from trials in our life. Now, it's plausible that James is speaking of internal trials here, right? We, we tend to think of trials in our life being things like, oh, health issues, mental struggles, uh, or maybe societal issues uh, related to, you know, disagreements over politics or family problems, etc. Those are all things that we tend to kind of put in the trial category of our life when we're dealing with things that come about that cause us hardship and pain and suffering. But it's more than likely here when he's writing of trials of various kinds, but in verse 12, under trial is more likely with verse 2, is referring to what the entirety of the New Testament usually means by this, which is various forms of persecution related to either proclaiming or living out the faith. So a lot of times we don't like to think of it in those terms. We... we transition the term trials to the things that we go through every day in life losing a loved one someone being diagnosed with you know cancer those things are trials and and those are truly trials but what we do is tend to buffer ourselves from the reality of what the text usually is referring to and that means are we being true to what God's called us to which is the gospel because that's 
what these folks were dealing with. It wasn't just about these other trials going on in their life, but it was dealing with that they were having to live out this new way of life and proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, that it came about that they were persecuted and they were going through trials for that very reason. So let me ask you, is, what is it costing you today? So you remember James is an application text, right? That's the reason we're going through it. And a good question comes out of this. Are we faithful as believers to the call in Matthew 28, 19 and Acts 1, 8? Are we going out and making disciples? Are we going out and taking the gospel to Kings Mountain and the surrounding areas and then to the world? Are we faithful in those things? Because truly that's what James is getting at here is because that's what the early church was doing. Yes, they had other things going on in their life where they were dealing with suffering and pain, but James's main point of the context here is that people were sharing their faith. They were being diligent in the faith, and because of that, they were suffering persecution, and they were put under trial for it. False claims being brought up, arrested, being put to death. The reality of the situation is much more bleak than oftentimes we want to make it. Because what we do is we generally tunnel our thoughts of what a trial is into the text. And we make that what it is. And James is dealing with something much deeper. So let me ask you, because the assumption here to the reader of the first century would have been under the umbrella of persecution of a matter of sharing one's faith and living it out. Is that us today? And the way we can gauge that is... Are we dealing with persecution in our own lives? Are we being so bold with our life that persecution is coming out of that? That trials are coming out of that? That we are being treated unfairly and unjustly because of what we believe about Jesus? This is what the early church was going through. So are we being obedient in these areas? But also we have to remember that, as I said earlier, James is a book application, so it's good to ask questions and we are seeking wisdom here, right? If we go back to verses 5, I believe through 7, it, James is imploring them to seek wisdom, meaning to, to dig in God's Word, to find out who God is and what He has to say about these matters. So let me start by saying that God not only allows these things, He allows you to go through persecution and suffering and pain and trials but brings them about also because it shows the sovereignty of God in our trials. It absolutely does. God is now out here somewhere and then you're going through a trial. He has permitted it. He has allowed it. He has brought it about for a specific reason and purpose to show us that He is sovereign even in our trials. He does not leave you alone. He does not forsake you. He is always with you. That is James's message here is, is ultimately reflects as it states is the character of who God is. That's what we're getting to here today. So what it really begins to show us it, it, and it helps us to develop is a spiritual formation in our lives. It helps us to humble ourselves because if you go back up a couple of verses, James is talking about 
what is humility and what is exaltation. And what are we to be as believers, but we are to be humble in our faith. Understanding that we don't deserve anything, but God has been gracious and merciful to us and given it to us. It reveals deeper the mercy of God as he shows us that not out of our own will, but as verse 18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by his word. Whose will? Not ours, but out of his own will, God brought us forth. Brings us this understanding of what we're doing here, folks, today is a deeper understanding of God's character. It's who he is. In persecution, we grow deeper in our love for him as referenced in verse 12. Remember from verse 2 that we meet trials, right? That's what it says if you go back up top. And then in verse 3, that they produce steadfastness. And then on it says in verse 12, blessed are those who remain steadfast. So that's why it's important with context. That's why I'm tying it back to verses 2 through 4 today and the verses prior to it. Because all of this, what James is writing, is giving us the hope that we need to remain steadfast in the midst of trials. So what does steadfastness reveal? What does it reveal about me and you? What did it reveal about the early church when we think about that term or perseverance? What does it say about you if you're able to remain steadfast in the faith? Does it mean that we will work for our faith? Is that what it is? Is it as long as we're remaining steadfast with the Lord, that we're, we're working alongside of Him, that, that you know, we're good, that we're working for our faith? No. If we just remain steadfast, then we please God and it contributes to our salvation. No. In no way, folks, do we contribute anything. Verse 8 takes care of that. Or 18 takes care of that. It already says by His will. He has saved us through his word. So, no, but steadfastness in times of persecution, get this, you want to highlight something or write it down, it reveals a genuine faith. That's what steadfastness does. It does not add credit to your debt. It does not work alongside of your faith so that you may be saved. You get to the end of time and God says, you were steadfast, you persevered, great job. That's not the point of it. Jesus has already finished it. We learned that over the past two weeks. He has already secured it for us. The steadfastness is only saying that we who remain steadfast, it reveals our genuineness in the faith in the first place. For those who walk away from the faith, And don't remain steadfast. They were never genuinely changed by the word of God. That's what it's getting at. That's why he adds it in verse 18. It is by the will of God that you're saved. Not by your own accordance. That's why when we're obedient in sharing our faith. And persecution comes about. We endure through it. Then it reveals the truth of our salvation. You get that? So... If you're obedient in sharing your faith and living it out and persecution comes and you endure through it, this is what it reveals about your character. It shows that you are true in your genuine or the genuineness of your faith. 
Not only is God sovereignly working to produce spiritual formation of life, so he allows these things to take place. He brings them about trials in order to produce and, and show that we are genuine in the faith, but also to produce something within us, which is the ability to withstand more and more trials and things as we go through them. So he's producing us, he's sanctifying us, he's setting us apart in our life, but he is also preparing an eternal gift. Isn't that great news? It's not just about this life, he's growing us deeper in him so that we may enjoy him more and more each day of our life as we go through these trials and we get to know him deeper, but he is also preparing for us something eternally greater. So in verse 12, he speaks of receiving the crown of life. We hear this over in Revelation as well. Which God has promised to those who love him, the verse says. So what is the qualification here? It says, well, love produces steadfastness. Love for who? Love for God. That's why I say you, you know through steadfastness if you have a genuine faith. Because genuine faith produces a love for God. And that love for God is what helps get us through the difficult situations in our life, whether they be persecution or whether they be personal things. So you recall, I just said about, what I just said about genuine faith reveals steadfastness, which James contributes here, James contributes here as a love for God. So this begs the question, what is the crown of life? Right? If we read the text, what does that look like? What does that text mean? Like we've heard it over and over before maybe. We get a crown of life. It's not talking about an actual crown here. It's talking about generally, it's the Greek word in the sense of a, a wreath that traditionally was placed on the head of a, vic, a victor in, in the sense of athletics. People in here play sports? Any of us? Any of you? Right? Nothing better than getting that trophy at the end, Right? On a trophy, not, 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 not the day's trophy where everybody gets a trophy. I'm talking about like when you actually won something and you, you feel like, uh, you know, I accomplished something. And you get that trophy. The same was in the context here that it wasn't a trophy. It was a, it was a, a wreath, a crown that was placed on the victor's head so that everyone would know whether it was an athletic accomplishment or whether it was a military accomplishment, that that wreath was placed on that person's head because they were victorious in whatever they had accomplished. But I want to be careful here when, when we deal with this word as a reward, as it seems to indicate, because that's what we were just talking about. You come in first place, you get a trophy, right? Reward is something that you accomplished. Athletics back in the day of the Greeks, they accomplished this wreath. But I want to make sure I'm careful with that because verse 17 answers it more clearly in saying that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So it's not something that we accomplish. See, a reward tends to indicate something that we have earned, Right? And we have earned nothing or deserved nothing. In our own lives, as it pertains to our faith, we have earned nothing and deserved nothing. Don't get this confused. 
James is not saying, good job. I'm going to give you the crown of life because you contributed to your salvation. You deserve this. Jesus only half done the job, and through your life, you, you lived it out, and you contributed to that. No, Jesus accomplished it. You have nothing to offer. That's why James further describes it in verse 17, as I just read, as a gift, not a reward. Something given on someone else's behalf to you. It is because of Jesus and our genuine faith in him. Get that? Okay, this is tying back into the genuine faith aspect. It has nothing to do with how we live our life in the sense of earning something. But we live our life in accordance because we have genuine faith and love God. So it ties it back to that. That we are gifted with the crown of life. Gifted. Not rewarded. He gifts it to us. Meaning a gift is not something you deserve or you've paid for. It's just a gift. It's, It's here. You didn't deserve it. For no other reason than Jesus do we deserve this. I think Micah said this earlier perfectly. So our faith in him, which verse 18 again tells us derives from him, is a reason we are provided the picture of victory through his gift to us. So then the question that is prompted here, that you know, letters were written, written during this time to answer questions for the church, right? I'm sure most of y'all know that. So James is responding. The question then becomes, if God purposes the trial, as I stated earlier, if he brings about the trial and he purposes it, does that make him responsible as the tempter as well? Or what is the responsibility of man in temptation? I'm going to read verse 13 and 15 again for you because this is very important to get. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That shows you our nature, what we want. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And we know that to be true out of the garden if we read the story. But those things is exactly how it occurred. So, yes, God is sovereign and he's in control. But this is the balance of God's sovereignty and man's free will. It's always a tough distinction to make sometimes. Remember Job, when God is not the tempter of Job, but does purpose it, right? You remember the story of Job? Right? Does God bring about anything on Job? No. The Bible does not say that. It says Satan, the tempter, comes before God and allows Satan to tempt him. God allows it. He permits it. It's his purpose to do so. But he has no hand in orchestrating it. He is not the tempter. Satan is the tempter. God knows no evil. He does not do any evil. Or do you remember Joseph's life, Joseph's life in Genesis, his account? Several chapters there take up the life of Joseph and his brothers and Jacob. And it tells us about the purpose of how through 
Joseph's own lack of humility, right? Sometimes we throw that off on his brothers, but if you remember, Joseph kind of went out boasting and bragging, saying, hey, one day all you are going to kneel before me and bow. Probably not the wisest thing for a young man to do. So what did his brothers do? He's pretty upset, right? They sin. They throw him into a hole, leave him for dead, and they think that he's dead. Out of their own free will, they do that. Out of their own sin, Joseph brags, and then out of his brother's sin, they throw Joseph into a hole in the ground. But who purposed it? God did. God had given Joseph the dream that made him brag. That brought about the eventual end to all these things. If you remember, at the end of Genesis, what happens? When Joseph finally comes back and in the moment that he meets his brothers again, he's kind of testing them right, trying to get an idea of, of what they're like and where they're at in their life. Especially that of his younger brother, Benjamin. But what does he end up saying to his brothers? Do you remember? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So even in the tents of men's hearts and the sinfulness, in the situations of trial and tribulation that God allows you to go through, God is working for the good of those who love him. See, God works through the evil of men. To bring about his good purpose, right? See it in Joseph, see it in Job, see it in Peter. And then we also see it in Jesus' own life. Acts 2.27 tells us that God planned and purposed that Jesus would be delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, God's plan. But who does Peter blame here? Does he blame God for that? No. He puts it back on man. He said, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we see God's eternal purpose and him using the means of evil men to bring about it. He is not responsible for that in any way. He is not the tempter. And James answers his readers here very clearly say, stating such that God in no way is evil nor does he bring about evil. Get this church. He may permit it. He may allow it. But in the life of the believer it is always for your good. Always. So temptation does not come from God but from within ourselves. Temptation is no more than the, the test of our will itself while God may permit it for his purpose, he has no part in it. In this case, in the case of Jesus again, he tested him in the wilderness, right? God tested him. The scriptures say that. But Satan was the one tempting. Not God. I keep using these examples. I want to make sure it hits home with you that who God is in his character. It says, this is what those of the dispersion were wondering. Those in the church. Those who James is writing to. Why does God bring this temptation on them, these trials? Why does he bring these hardships? Is he tempting them? Is he the one behind this? And while God, yes, purposes, he is not the one behind it. And 
James reminds him that the Lord's own character does not allow him to tempt or to be tempted. But as he permits tempting, your will then decides to be enticed by your desires to give in or not. That is true of your life. When you go through persecution, whether you give in to it or you don't, is based on your own free will and your accordance. God may bring that about. What's he doing that for? Again, to test your faith, the genuineness of it. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Do you desire to know him deeper? So I can tell you, as you go through trial after trial after trial, you get to know that God deeper and deeper and deeper. So, why does God bring the temptation on them, these trials? But James reminds them that the Lord's own character has already stated he doesn't allow it. But he permits it. See, the Lord tests us, but he does not tempt us. As Christians, the way that we respond to trials should be influenced by our steadfast love for God. If you write anything else down, write that down. It should be influenced by our steadfast love for God. When we go through trials, that should be it. And, and that is a, a beacon. That's a measuring for you. How are you? How are you dealing with it? When these things come up, are you throwing your hands up like many do, walking away from the faith? Are you giving up, saying, I don't really believe anymore? I just don't know if this God I can really trust. See, he's proving something there. He's, he's, he's testing you. He's testing the genuineness of your faith. So remember that it should be influenced by our steadfast love for God and the way we respond to trials. But why does God even permit it, right? So if he's a good God, why does he allow these things to happen? Well, it says in verse 4, if you go back to what I read earlier, let steadfastness have its full effect. It's talking about the duration of your life here on earth. Your journey as a Christian. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's desire in this life for you is that you not lack in anything. And that most of all, that you rest in Him. God allows it so we may grow deeper in our relationship with Him because it reveals the goodness of God. You go through a trial and you come out on the other side and you remain steadfast in your love for God, it's going to reveal only one thing about God, His goodness. And it's going to teach you that over and over every time you go through something in life. So when we look back at the end of our life, whether how short or long that may be, those who are genuine will only be able to say that the Lord has blessed them greatly can be the only thing that you say as a genuine believer. In the moment, it may not seem like that. When you lose a spouse, when you are going through a tough time, you lose a job, you lose the respect of your peers. It could be a ton of different trials. Or going back to the persecution aspect. In that moment, it doesn't feel so good. But when you look back on it, you realize how good God was in it. James is getting that across here. Verse 16 says that 
not to be deceived by the untruth that God tempts, right? Going back to that. But instead, 17, as already stated, the goodness of God is defended in that he uses these trials to reveal his goodness. That's what he's doing. The goodness of God is defended because he's using these trials to reveal that he is good. James goes even further to declare that this is consistent with God's character as it calls him the father of lights with whom there is no variation. It's an interesting statement, right? The father of lights with whom there is no variation. I had to kind of work my way through that. But when you think about how John talked about light and darkness and it's often contrasted in the New Testament and the Old Testament the idea that God is the father of lights he is the the supreme of of goodness is what that's ultimately saying because light is ascribed as goodness and in this case that's what we see is that God is being ascribed as the one who is all good there is no darkness to be found in him he is the father of lights any good that comes out of us is because of him. Any good that we see in the world is because of him. Because he is the father of lights. And I like the fact that it says, whom there is no variation. Meaning that he does not deviate from one circumstance to the next. But his character remains consistent. Does that mean you, each of us go through the same trial? No. But his character remains consistent. It never changes. His ultimate goal and purpose is to reveal the glory and the goodness of himself. It never deviates away from that. It never is like, well, you know what? I'm going to tempt so-and-so today. He's not a tempter. I'm going to really bring the hammer down on this person today. He could, but at the same time, it says that he has no variation. It means that he is consistent in everything in his being that that does not change that should bring you assurance and hope knowing that you serve a God who is one that does not deviate he will never change his plans on you or his eternal purpose his good is for your good sometimes you get lost up here by the way um that means that, oh, sorry, <clears throat> knowing that God is good and that he only permits the trials of believers that they may know him deeper and grow in their faith even more. Can you imagine if you never went through a trial or a trial never came about? Just think about that. So what if persecution never came or you never suffered in life, never had a hard time? What would that mean for you? Generally, your dependency is going to fall back in one place on you. You're going to begin to say, well, everything's good and great. Matter of fact, when Satan goes to Job, that's actually, or the God, that's his accusal for Job. Well, you hadn't really ever tested him. You've never tempted him. Or not tempted him, you never tested him. Let me tempt him. God says, okay, I will. And at the end of the day, we see what the story of Job is as you get to the end of it, that, that he loved God. He remained steadfast in his faith of him. So, just imagine for a fact, if you never went through a trial, it would lead to complacency. It would lead to a belief in your own heart that you can control all circumstances. It would lead to idolatry. But God brings about these things so that we are dependent on whom? Him. 
It makes us go back to Him. And that is what James is writing about here. Is saying that it is a testing of your genuine faith. So that you have to rely back on the eternal good God. And it's because of the suffering of the saints. And our suffering that the goodness of God can be celebrated. That's it. We celebrate who God is because He brings us out of those things. James is writing that to the believers to say, be celebratory. Yeah, you're going through this in this moment. That crown of life is coming. You're victorious. Remember that already because of Christ. So listen to verse 18 as we finish. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. I thought that was another interesting statement. James makes some interesting things here. He says, now this is speaking to the early church, right? You understand that first contextual point is he is not speaking to you and me. He is speaking to the early church. So what does it mean to them? <clears throat> but it has implications for us all. So the first fruits were understood to be the beginning of a harvest, Right? So, understanding that this was the early church, they were really the, the first believers who professed Christ. They were the first fruits of the new covenant, is what this is getting at. And it says that they would be the first fruits of his creature, but the understanding of first fruits is they're generally in the harvest something to become after the first fruits. So, you think about. For my gardeners in here, people who have gardened before, when tomatoes pop up, is that all you pull off the first fruits? Or do more come behind it? No, more generally come behind it. Matter of fact, you know, you think about squash or tomatoes, whatever. Generally, you have so much of it in abundance, you're trying to give it away. Because you had the first fruits, and then after that, you had more that came behind. So you're kind of giving it away to get rid of some of it. So James is commending them that they are the beginning of something new. How does that fit in with us? What does it mean for us? That we are recipients of their steadfastness. Because they were true in the faith, we are here today sitting in this room. And that means the early church in general as well. Because God is good and His character is good that we sit in this room today and we continue to flourish around the world. Maybe it doesn't seem like that if you look at our nation, but I can guarantee you this, that the church continues to grow. I can provide you that data if you'd like. It is true. So it is true that God, while this, they were the first fruits of it, we are those who have benefited greatly. Their faith was passed down over generations and we still get to be a part of it because God is good. He has saw to it that never did the gates of hell prevail against the church. The gospel has always went forward and it will always continue to until he brings, he, he returns. So may it also be said of our faith as well that we are a people who love God and remain steadfast in him. And for generations to come that we have an impact on those who come after us. May they look back one day and say, that person 
I'm going to use an example here. You may remember when Rick Panther had a great impact on my life. There's people I can say that about in my life. There's people you can say that about in your life. It's true. I remember when that team came down to Honduras and they had an impact on my life. Or they went, you know, and, and they, that couple, they fostered me or they brought me into their home and they adopted me. They had a huge impact on my life. All those things are true that we have an impact for generations to come because we have remained steadfast in our faith and trusted in the Lord despite the difficult times that may come up. So what does this mean for us today? This is kind of the so what. I didn't have this up there. I would encourage you to write these four things down. I'm going to make them brief. So what does this mean for you today? First off, may you be faithful in your calling. It goes back to what I said earlier. The general assumption of this letter is those, the church was being faithful in their calling. I asked you the question earlier, are you? If you are, great. If you can do a better job, great, do it. So first off, make you be faithful to your calling. Making disciples, sharing the gospel, baptizing those who need to be baptized and believe. Number two, may your genuineness of your faith be revealed in moments of trial. So that when the the peering eyes of the world look around and they see us, it should look different how you handle something as opposed to the unlost, non-believing person in your life. That they should see something significantly different in how you handle a trial as opposed to them. That reveals genuineness. I'm not saying we're always perfect. We don't fail. But there should, more times than not, we should be living for God in our steadfastness. Number three, not to be enticed by sin, but by the goodness of God and His promises. Believer, do not allow sin to continue to control you, to enslave you. The goodness of God should set you free. And number four, know that you are part of what God has done throughout history in redeeming people back to Him and that you will continue as you remain faithful to be a part of that redemptive history. I'm going to pray for us today as the worship team comes back up. Father, we thank you for just your word as it we read it time and time again no matter what letter we turn to or in the in the gospels or with the prophets or in the psalms lord that we're told that the world hates us jesus is, jesus told us that that while they first hated him they will hate us too Lord, so it is expected as we live our life as believers and we are genuine in the faith and we are truly following you and being obedient that people are going to hate us. Lord, may we take it as a grain of salt and we, may we see the blessedness of remaining steadfast in the faith. Knowing, Lord, that all things work for your eternal purpose and knowing that your character will not be compromised. And that you are truly good, Lord. And that, Lord, at the consummation of all things, that we will truly see 
and enjoy what all of this was. That we look back at the trials throughout our life, even though they may have not been kind to us in that moment. They may have been difficult. They may have made us hit our knees, Lord. That, Lord, you, Lord, in the end, as we look back and reflect back, that you are good and we see that your eternal purpose is coming to fruition. And that as believers, we are different than the world in how we respond because of Christ. So, Lord, as we leave this place, may we be faithful in what you've called us to be. And, Lord, when that persecution comes and those trials come, that we do not bow to them or we do not worry about them, Lord, but that we face them boldly because we know you walk with us in your goodness. Lord, we love you here. We thank you. And may we now worship you in your name I pray. Amen.